Welcome to the Nuffield Australia podcast. This first season features recordings from our 2021 annual conference, held for the first time as a digital webinar. The conference featured Australian and international guest speakers, as well as Nuffield scholars exploring four of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. We hope you enjoy listening to the insights from the conference. Okay, good afternoon to all and welcome to day two of the Nuffield Virtual National Conference webinar. My name is Richard Heath. I'm a 2003 scholar, originally from Gunnedah in Northwest New South Wales, uh, currently now living in Sydney and um, acting as the Executive Director of the Australian Farm Institute. Firstly, I'd like to begin today by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we all gather and pay my respects to their elders past and present. In my case, it's the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, uh, but I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders people, peoples here today. Thanks also to our two virtual national conference partners, Rabobank and CSIRO for their support. Uh, today's conference day is generously and exclusively supported by CSIRO. Um, I'm sure we all realise how important it is to have the support of organisations like these uh, in helping Nuffield do what it does. Uh, it just wouldn't be possible uh, for Nuffield to be the organisation that it is without the generous support of the sponsors and supporters. So we're going to go straight into our first speaker. Who is Dick Whitman? Dick is a board chair and former manager of a 20,000 acre dryland crop, range cattle and timber operation in Northern Idaho. He also provides private consulting to farm, ranch and agricultural support businesses. He has served on the faculty of the TPAP Ag Executive Program in Austin, Texas since 2003. And stewardship has been a Whitman family farm tradition. So very much tying in with the SDG 15 theme, uh, which is about life on the land for this session. The farm was selected as the National Millennium Farm Family, farm family in 2000 by the Ag Earth Partnership. Dick, take it away. It's a pleasure to be here tonight, To, or I guess it's in the middle of the day for you. It's actually eight o'clock here at night in Idaho. And uh, it's a very special opportunity for me to interact with your group. I've had a very long standing relationship with many farm managers and, and agribusinesses in Canada and Australia having traveled throughout both of those countries extensively. And uh, it's nice to renew uh, acquaintances with many of the Nuffield scholars that I've met with in the TPRAP program and other programs. I'm gonna go at a fairly fast pace tonight to try to condense a three to four hour message into less than 45 minutes. Uh, we're gonna be talking about the concept of best practices of leading farmers and you already have a bit of my background. I'm just going to summarize by saying that I spent an eight-year career with banking. I spent a 40-year career managing the family business, and I've also spent over 40 years doing family business consulting. So I've seen agriculture and agribusiness from every angle you can, and people liken my career to kind of like I go out and preach the gospel, and then I have to come home and practice what I preach in a 20,000-acre farm operation. And if you sense that I have a passion for the importance of management, a lot of it is derived by the fact that these concepts are not just theory. They're things that have to be practiced as a foundation for your success. We've had the privilege of having a very diverse operation, grain and cattle and timber and, and hunting. 
I've experienced 12 transition events in the last 40 years. And uh, your speaker panel asked me to share a little bit about our family and, and why the message tonight is also important to our family. At the core of our business, uh, we have a team who has all committed to running the business like a professionally managed business. And to me, that's the central theme that we're going to talk about today. Uh, we are now with our fourth generation actively managing the farm. And the fifth generation is now on the ground, as you can see some of these young faces. Our youngest daughter is the CEO of the business. She took over that job four years ago when I retired as general manager. And we have cousins, nephews, son-in-laws. We have a very diverse combination of family. And when people look at that combination, they go, how in the world do you make this work? That generally does not work anywhere else. And I'll tell you, we make it work because everyone on the team has a commitment to running this business professionally. When we look at the future, our future and our farm is not going to involve just people working on the farm. It's all going to, it will also involve owners off the farm who can be children, our grandchildren, son-in-laws, daughter-in-laws. We recently took over a new piece of ground, and part of passing on our core values to our grandchildren is giving them an opportunity to learn how to pick rocks. And uh, after 30 years of no-till, we rarely pick rock, but when we bought a, new, bought a new piece of ground that's not had that farm practice, we're gonna spend the next five years cleaning the rock off. But as you can see, our, our newest grandson, he's ready to take over, ready to run that combine. And we gotta continually look down the road at who the future of the business is. So our agenda today is to look at what are the key proficiencies and best practices you need to say you're a professionally managed business. We'll look at what happens when you don't adhere to these and hopefully give you a, a path for building new knowledge and implementation. Uh, there's extensive resources on my website that you can go to, and I would strongly encourage you to go into the website and download the proficiency test to score how you're doing on many of these best practices we're gonna talk about today. A good friend of mine who's also in the consulting businesses uses this graphic to talk about where are you and your family business life cycle. Many of us start in survival mode, and after we succeed for a while, we, we get into a stable mode where we're profitable, we're growing, but ultimately, we would like to aspire to become a professionally managed business where there's multiple generations that have been involved we're growing, we've introduced non-family management, we've established formalized policies and procedures, and maybe if you hang around for 200 or 300 years, you may even become an institutional farm business. Rarely does a farm business get past stage three, but many of us are down here in stage one and two, and we aspire to get to this third block. When we talk about what does it mean to be a professionally managed business, I'm gonna use this graphic to summarize all the pieces that make up your management engine. And each one of these pieces is a key part of your management process, where you, if you envision that as the same as a, a motor in your combine, where if any part of that motor is failing, the whole motor crashes. So any one of these management processes that's not done well <clears throat> can contribute to your demise. So we're gonna start around this circle, take a 40,000 foot look at each one of these boxes, talk about what it means and how you can apply these concepts in your business. 
Mission, vision, and core value statements are what I call the key guardrails that you work within in a business. Only about a third of the businesses that I work with have these defined. <clears throat> if you can't agree on what these are, you, have, you do not have the team pull in the same direction. I'm a strong advocate that these should be written down. They should be posted visibly on your farm, in the shop, in the kitchen, in those places in your employee handbook where all of your team can readily see what they are. This is what our statement looks like. It's posted on the shop and the office wall. And it's nothing really magic, but it's amazing how many times we've had to point an employee to this document so that they're on, they're reminded of what our mission is, what our core values are, and <clears throat> what's our vision for the future. Vision is a different concept. It looks at where you want to land. Where, how would you have someone describe your business at the end of your professional journey? For many, we hope to have grown and innovated. We hope that we're financially successful. And we, and we have a vision that we'd like the business to pass on to future successors. That's not everybody's vision. Some of you may have a vision to have a very successful business and sell it at the maximum price when you're done. And we need to make that okay. But it's not a sense of failure if you build a successful business and you, you have successors that have other passions, they have different interests and in careers, and different interests in investments. And so we need to redefine success as both of those options are okay. When I work with family business clients, one of the first things we delve into are what are your core values? And we often find that this is with the first place that we have the cracks in the armor. For a business to succeed in a succession planning process, I have a common rule that says there must be alignment of expectations to be successful. So when you look at core values, this is, these are areas that often diverge. Some want to be progressive. Others want to leave things the way they are. Some want to make the most money today and sacrifice long-term profits or environmental sustainability of their business. People battle over what's more important, God or family or the business. And they're all important, but how do we put them in balance and have a team that commits to equal attention to all three of these? <clears throat> you have... Some who believe that professionalism in, in dealing with each other is a critical part of how you interact. And others take the position that we're family, we can talk to anybody the way we want. We don't have to be courteous and respectful in how we interact. Another one of my most common conflicts when it comes to core values is the issue of entitlement versus merit. You have some that feel like they're owed a job if they have the right last name, while others feel like you must earn your your pay you must earn your job, you must have the right skill set, and so forth. So summing up these areas, if you have people working together who do not have a shared vision and values, you've got a wreck, and they simply cannot sustainably work together as a team. If this goes on unrecognized, you're at each other's throats, we chase the future successors away, we often destroy our family and business relationships, and the business runs aground. The next block is planning. And academicians have made the concept of planning way too complicated. I've learned how to, to simply to look at this as two interconnected processes. We have an operational or any annual planning process, and we have a strategic planning process. And I'm gonna show you a schematic of how you simplify this and connect. Now you're probably looking at me saying, that doesn't look very simple. 
But really, it's simply two things. Your operating plan is the what we do. Your strategic plan is how we do it. So in your operating planning, every year we make a decision on what to produce, how to finance it, how to market it, what capital needs to be bought and sold, what's our, our human resource plan for staffing the business. And it is readily put into a budget where we can see what the business will do after a one-year projection. The outer circle is the how we do it. So I ask people, what's your strategic plan for growth? Less than 1% of the people in audiences that I poll actually have a strategic plan for growth. When I re-ask the question, how many of you would like to say you had a plan? Almost all the hands go up. If you look, take each one of these topics around the outer circle, you should be able to define what your strategic approach is. Are you a conventional tiller? Are you a no-tiller? What's your crop rotation? And the basic issue when it comes to strategic planning is, do we keep on keeping on doing the same way we always have, or do we look at making a strategic shift in how we run our business? We don't have time today to get into details on these, but I strongly advocate that you take each, you take your business and define what are the strategic issues that are important to my business. And on an every three to four year cycle, do you sit down with your team and actually say, where are we strategically and where should we be moving down the road? When we don't have professional planning, we have lots of wrecks. And they occur in many areas, but the area that both that I see it causes the most grief is when we don't have a thoughtful and proactive approach to succession planning. This is something we can control by engaging the right people in the discussion and looking at the long-term direction of the business and making a plan. The next block we're going to talk about is one of my favorites. This is organizing and dividing responsibilities. The key questions here are, are your roles clearly divided? Is there a reporting and accountability structure clearly defined? Not only now, but how will it look five to 10 years down the road, particularly if you're looking at a transition situation? Do individual team members have clearly written job description? Of the TPAP students that I've taught over the last 20 some years, we poll people coming into this class, and these, a lot of these statistics are based on the 20-year average. Only two in five have any written job descriptions in their business. One of the first things I do with the client is I ask all the members of the business to put down on paper what the organization chart looks like. If I have four people, I get four different pictures. Rarely do these pictures look the same. And you can see in this picture, there is no obvious CEO or or general manager, and a lot of differences on who reports to whom. This is what a conventional org chart could look like. It's very similar to our own business, where someone's in charge of cattle, crops, specialty enterprises, equipment maintenance. There's a general manager. We have seasonal help. The board of directors is basically this group of people who are working in the business, but also have ownership shares in the business. And you may also like to have an advisory board that's a non-member of your ownership group. When we look at many of these organization charts, even those that have them, this is the missing piece. Many farm businesses don't visibly treat the board of directors as part of their governance structure. And you have a board, you just have not recognized it because anytime you're setting policy, you're deciding who's going to be the manager for the future. 
when you're looking at financial statements, you're doing the things that a board of owners would typically do. In a so I think one of the critical messages that I hope you take away is ask yourself, where is my board function in our business? And what are the key duties that that board function does? And it might be the same people that are managing and it might be the same people out doing day, daily workload. But on those days that they sit as a board, what are, you, what are your responsibilities to set policy, to set strategy, to hire, direct, and evaluate management, and to exercise financial control? How many of you have thought about the career path in your business? My experience with farms, we start out as a grunt, and then if we stick around long enough, we get to be assistant manager. And then if the old goat kicks off, we get to be boss or CEO. And then what? For 40-some years, I've asked that question in front of groups, and the and the audience looks at me with a blank stare, and, and I know what they're thinking. Then what? They're thinking, well, you have to die. We have a very narrow-minded thinking process of career path because we feel like it ends as being the boss, and then you have to be turned out to pasture. We need to extend this career path to one more job role, and that's the board chair or transition coach. Many of us in, in the senior years of our business are still healthy, we're actively engaged. We want to be involved in the business, but we have groomed talent that's ready to take over as managers. And learning how to step out of that role into a board chair role and a mentor and a coach is, is one of the biggest challenges I face with my more tenured clients. We talked earlier about the importance of job descriptions. These have many uh, benefits, but I think one of the most significant benefits is using them as a tool for transition. Working with clients, I tell them repeatedly, you can't tell me where you're going to transition to until you can tell me where you're transitioning from. And very few people have actually thought about what are the decisions that I make on a daily basis that if I want to transition out of those, who knows what those decisions are, what are the skill sets and responsibilities that I would have to pass on to make sure those jobs are performed well. We published a guidebook in 2004, and we re recently updated this this past year, working collaboratively with Farm Management Canada. And there are a number of sample job descriptions in this guidebook that give people a starting point to try to figure out, well, if I'm the shop foreman, what would my job description look like? Well, I'm the CFO or I'm the crop production manager. What are some of the key duties? And we often think of these way too simplistic. Someone in a crop management role might have 25 different unique duties and responsibilities that they have to be excellent at to be a successful business. One of the issues in many businesses is eventually if the CEO decides to move on or retire, who's going to be the next boss? I show this slide to groups over, over and over again where I only give them the percentage share of the ownership in the business and the ages of the four principals in this business. So let's assume this is a partnership. There's four people. And so I'll have the crowd shout out on the count of three, who will most likely be the boss in this business? Nearly 100% of the time, the answer will come back, partner C. And I'll ask them, why is that? And what's really funny is oftentimes I'll get somebody to shout out, it's the oldest male. And if you look at this screen, you'll notice there's no sex on these four partners. But we have 
dominant attitude in agriculture that the oldest male is the one that needs to, to be the heir apparent. That dynamic is changing. We need to look at what are the jobs, responsibilities of the manager, and what are the attributes that we're looking for to be successful. Several years ago, I started looking at, I needed to plan my retirement and transition. And in one of our strategic planning sessions, I broached the subject with our partners and asked who was interested in possibly being groomed as the next manager. All the other partners at that time looked at me and said, not no, hell no, we don't want your job. We hate your job. And it was a real wake up call to me that they all were in jobs they enjoyed doing, but none of them wanted to be a management type person. And in a farm operation, we don't sit in a glass tower and just do managing full time. That's a key part of a manager's job. But a good share of the time you're on tractors, you're on you're managing livestock, you're doing other things. But if these jobs of management are not done well, your business will not succeed. So the other side of the coin is, depending on the structure of your team, what are the attributes you're looking for in your manager? And here's a sample of six or five attributes that a client actually put down on paper where they felt like there was four siblings working together and they didn't want somebody to boss them. They wanted a facilitator, someone that would empower them, someone that would promote teamwork and that they're willing to be accountable to a board of directors. So it's really important when you look at management transition to not only look at the duties and responsibilities, but also the attributes you're looking for. The next box is policies and SOPs. And in this category, some might look at this as bureaucracy, but I call these the landmines in a business. Very rarely do businesses have these things, these policies written down where it's clear to everyone how the business handles each of these issues. When I first work with a, a business client, they are given a 17 page questionnaire where everybody in the business writes down what they perceive to be the current policies in each of these areas. It's almost hilarious to see how much difference there is in interpretation of what the policy is because it's not in writing. And oftentimes the un, unwritten informal understanding is implemented in totally different ways depending on who the employee is. So the, we look at documenting policies for several reasons. It helps us to get consensus on the team, we can communicate what these are to the partners and their extended families. It, it helps improve job satisfaction and teamwork. And it also provides a basis for our professional reviewers to look at what practices we're following and whether or not we're complying with labor laws and regulations. We don't have time today to go through these 20 policies, but I'm gonna to touch on two key ones that are probably the hottest topics as I work with longer tenured family businesses. The first is family employment policy. Have you thought about who down the road might come knocking on your door in your family business and wants to work in your business? How would you answer the question, what's the criteria for me coming back to the farm as an employee? And the second question is, what's the criteria for me to come back to the business as an owner or an investor? These should not just be something where we wing it and wait till somebody shows up on our doorstep. There needs to be a thoughtful discussion of what are the criteria to be an investor in this business? What are the criteria that you need to meet to be an employee? 
Things like, do you have an apprenticeship requirement? This is a, a critical issue. I'll look back to the previous slide. Some of the most successful businesses that I work with have a minimum of three to five years that family members must work somewhere else and work under the employment of a non-related family member before they can be considered to work in the business. This just does some amazing things for letting people build some self-confidence and learning about accountability where they're not working for another family. Standard operating procedures are getting increased attention as society is looking more and more at not just what we're doing, but how we're doing it. Uh, we have a number of programs where we want to access value-added uh, premiums for the things that we grow. Those often require much very detailed documentation on how we go about our production processes. And they have a number of advantages from training to increasing a safety atmosphere and so forth. When we don't have documented SOPs, we have a lot of problems. We can have inconsistent work, accidents, inefficiency. We can expose people to food safety and worker safety violations. Both of these pictures happen in our neighborhood. The one picture of the tractor rollover was a preventable accident where several things were, shortcuts were taken that caused that accident to happen. When we look at SOPs in a business, there are many areas that more and more farms are realizing we need to write down how we do things from equipment servicing to agronomy, to farm safety, food safety, herd health procedures, office functions and stock handling. In the new guidebook edition, we have a substantial number of templates for sample SOPs in many of these areas. And the whole idea is to help prime the pump so that you can look at these and realize this isn't extremely hard to do. It's just a matter of writing down the process you're following so that you can have a consistent and efficient way of having these jobs done. The next block is communication and coordination of efforts. If someone asked you, what is your communication culture? How would you answer it for your business? There's a number of things that come under this category. Do you have a clear understanding of how people are expected to communicate amongst your team? Do you invest in personality style training so you know how you're wired, how you communicate, and how you receive information? Do you share financial information openly? Do you have a clearly defined structure for meetings from staff and management, owners and family? And do you have clearly documented understandings on things like buyout agreements and succession plans? This is one of the tools that we use a lot. It's the, called the DISC profile, and it is a personality profiling system that helps you to identify what your approach is. This particular illustration is a husband-wife team that manages a 10,000-cow dairy operation. On the left is the CEO. You can see this person is a high-dominance, high-influencer. His wife is a CFO, and she is the stable, conscientious perfectionist. Do the attributes of these two different personalities have clashes? Absolutely. But these two people are like a seamless Swiss clock. They absolutely perform very well. And each of them has attributes about their personality that help the business succeed. But in them clearly understanding how they're wired, they also have a much more mutual respect for how they receive and transmit information. 
there are a number of personality and, and leadership style tools out there. And I would strongly suspect that many of you in your group have done some of these. I like to see DISC or Myers-Briggs as a leveling tool for all employees. If you're looking at somebody that's going to ascend to a new leadership position, a, a major management role, it's really valuable to do the Colby task or strengths finders to look at how people approach decision-making and what are some of their leadership strengths. Measuring performance and establishing controls is the last area of our discussion. And this involves a number of dimensions. What are your financial records that you keep and, and analyze? How do you approach both individual and farm business performance reviews? Do you have a culture for outgoing training and professional development? How do you use outside advisors and what kind of audit and internal control systems do you have? There are two sayings that I really believe uh, apply. One is we manage what we measure. And the second is people do what is inspected, not what is, is expected. When it comes to financial management best practices, um, this is one of the major areas that I teach at the TPAP program. And farm businesses fail really badly in most of these areas. If I were in your shoes, I would look at each of these key areas and ask myself, do I get an A passing grade or do I need more study and implementation in each of these areas? And so I'll just very briefly define these. Do I have a clearly defined cash versus accrual net income analysis process? Are we calculating tax and economic depreciation to see how those different methods of depreciation affect profitability? Do we have a clearly documented cost and market value balance sheet that not only shows the difference between cost and market, but recognizes the unrealized gain and the deferred taxes that could be due on that gain if we were to liquidate the business? Do you have a clearly defined cost per unit of production for every commodity that you grow? Do you have a tax paying strategy where you recognize that sometimes the best strategy is actually paying tax? Because when you're paying tax, you're also profitable. Is there a professional cash flow budgeting and pro forma income projection process? Do we use trend sheets, three to five year basis to look at key ratios and trends over time, see how we're really doing? Are we using good capital asset acquisition models to optimize large purchases like combines and sprayers and big bailers? And do you know your capital debt repayment capacity? Is this something that banker knows or do you know it as well? So these are some of the, the top 10 financial proficiencies that I strongly encourage people to work at getting good at or making sure they have a support team that can help them achieve excellence in each of these areas. The last issue here is valuation. Very, very few farm businesses have performance evaluations of the key family principles. Many businesses have these in place for their other employees, but when I ask them, well, do you have evaluations for the related family members? I get this funny look and people say, are you nuts? And then they realize that's kind of a crazy statement to make. One of the scariest things I ever did was introduce a formalized performance evaluation process in our family business in the, in the late 1980s and early 1990s. And it was probably the, the one management change that we made 
that had more positives than anything I can ever imagine. And it was one of those key cogs on the wheel to move us towards a professionally managed business. So I'm gonna wrap up. Our goals today were to look at what are the critical conversations and topics that you would ask yourself, if I were to say I'm a professionally managed business, how would I define that? And hopefully you've come away with a better understanding of the tools and the steps that make up your management process. You're in a position now to score how well you're doing and deciding how many of these things you need to tune up. I'm gonna tell you a quick story about a guy that came to a workshop I put on and he was formerly employed as a fireman in a, and he was the manager of a large fireplace, fire store, or excuse me, wherever the firemen were, sorry. And after he got done, he came up to me and he said, your presentation just hit me like a brick. He said, I, I came back to the farm a year ago after my father died suddenly, and I took over a well-run farm with four employees. And my biggest fear is that I was going to chase all these people away. He said, I'm in total chaos. And he said, I realized after listening to your presentation that all these things you talked about, I was doing every one of those in the firehouse. I had mission, vision, values. I had job descriptions, policies, SOPs, and that place ran like a Swiss clock. And I realized that I'm running a farm business and it's no different than that firehouse. And so he couldn't wait to go home and do what he actually knew how to do, but he now had a realization that his farm wasn't just a way of life, it was a business. So ask yourself, does your governance process need to be professionalized? Where are you in each one of these boxes in scoring the level of professionalism that you're following in your business. A good place to start is to, to download the proficiency test on my website and score. Are these items in place? Are you working on it? Do you need it or do you not need it? And this will be a great map for you to decide what's, what are the areas that are most advantageous to increase the culture and professionalism in your business. I started out by saying our secret to success is a multi-generational commitment to professionally managed farm business. And I will echo that again, that we are so blessed to have a fifth generation now looking seriously at coming to work on this farm, but it's not an, it's not an accident. We have people who are on this team who have chosen to be here and they were invited to be a part of the team based on their commitment to support running this business professionally. So I'm gonna leave you with that thought. If you would ask yourself, how would someone else describe my business as a professionally managed business? How would you like to answer that question? Thanks, Dick. Um, what an absolutely fantastic presentation. Um, Dick is very kindly hanging around late into his evening time to be part of the panel session at the end. So if you'd all like to put your questions into the Q&A uh, and they can be directed to Dick um, at the end of the session. We do just have a couple of minutes before we have to go to Stuart Barden. So I'm actually going to take the prerogative just to ask you a question or two 
myself um and i'm just going to ask you and and tie it back a bit again to the theme of this session being seg 15 around uh sustainability of life on the land you talked about um developing strategic plans for growth um, as part of this management system i'm i'm wondering how much importance you place on and, and how many um organizations are involved with uh go to develop strategic plans for sustainability um, and how important that is it's a key part of our value system. We've had five generations strongly committed to conservation and sustainability. And when you've been around as long as we have, we haven't changed our value system, but they just keep changing the terms. The terms have gone from holistic to sustainable to regenerative to, I mean, I have 10 different terms that could all be defined as meaning the same thing. So our great grandfathers were committed to rotations. Um, each generation brought a new level of innovation to work towards long-term sustainability. My daughter and I are both on the Environmental Defense Fund's Farm Advisory Board, and this is an organization that many people view as the enemy, but we actually, we are great partners with an environmental organization that has been very active in global warming or in climate change issues. We've been one of the leaders in this community in no-till farming. And we feel like the more progress we make, the more we realize there's so much more we need to learn just starting out. And, and I will say that in the development of our no-till organization in 2000, we learned from the best resources in Australia, New Zealand, South America, Europe, who were actually way farther ahead than we were in some of these sustainability areas. Excellent. All right. Um, look, thank you again, Dick. Just to remind everyone that's listening as well that Dick actually teaches a TPAP course, and that is a course that is usually um, available as one of the post-scholarship opportunities um, through Nuffield for Nuffield Scholars. Um, obviously, COVID put the brakes on that this year, but Jody Redcliffe assures me it will be coming back. So keep an eye out for that course being advertised again. If you want to see uh, Dick in the flesh and, and get his wisdom up close. So we're now going to move on to uh, 2009 scholar Stuart Barden. Stuart moved to Kenya nine years ago following his Nuffield scholarship where he studied grain production in low rainfall environments. He and his family run Ozquest, a 1,100 hectare farm with arable owned and leased land near the Athai River. He is practicing conservation farming growing chickpeas, beans and fodder, including silage and haylage, using unconventional methods that are paying off, landing him the new title locally as Conservation Farming Ambassador. And I think we've got a video to play now from Stuart. Welcome uh, to my Nuffield brothers and sisters across the way, across the oceans. Um, my name's Stuart Barden, I'm a 2009 scholar we farm in Kenya, we've been here for 10 years. We've uh, got what a lot of Australians would consider to be a hobby farm. Ozquest farm uh, is 1101 hectares of arable land. We're 50 kilometres south of uh, Nairobi. We're in a 500 millimetre per annum rainfall area. We mainly farm on black cotton soils, which are considered in Kenya to be quite difficult, um, but they've got some wonderful properties. and. Uh, yeah, so uh, as far as uh, why we came. Well, we chose Kenya because of there's a, 
uh, in 2009, I travelled with doing a Nuffield scholarship and I saw the incredible potential that was in uh, in Kenya, for the particularly on the black soil, uh, that's just not being utilised. And, and there's 43 million people in, a, in you know, an area that's smaller than Alberta. And, uh, you know, food's an issue to them. It's a serious issue to them and it's going to be a big issue in the future. And uh, and I guess being in Australia, I was just felt like, you know, we were just growing commodity. It was just all about money and, um, yeah, so we took a fork in the road, I guess. Ten years ago, um, uh, our family came here because we really could see the great potential that, that's in these black cotton soils. And so we wanted to be able to show people just how good they are uh, and how valuable the low rainfall areas can be. So, yeah. And uh, you share this freely with the farmers from all over the country, that's true? Yeah, that's true. We've, uh, we've had around 10,000 visitors so far, uh, physical visitors, and uh, in, in a way that's why we're launching the uh, YouTube channel, the website, so that we can have this platform to share more information because we're physically so limited. 10,000 people sounds like a lot of people, but it's actually not. Um, so we can reach so many more people, we can get so much more information out there. That's one of our mantras, we don't charge for information because we don't want to exclude, doesn't matter whether someone's uh, uh, got half an acre or whether they've got 10,000 acres, that's not in our ethos, so, yeah. These are actually, uh, these here are uh, <coughs> green grams, mung beans. This is KS20, so, uh, yeah, so, local varieties and, uh, um, they're also called uncle locally, or they even call them Makawani. Oh, Makawani. Mac yeah, oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. We grow beans for food, but we also, we're increasingly moving to beans for seed. And that's really uh, quite exciting because uh, the beans for uh, seed, and I'll give you an example, this, there's, um, there's uh, some of it's gone, but there was 385 tonnes here of this mung bean seed. We grew it for a local seed company. They'll then, this will be sold in two kilogram packets and it'll end up in uh, with small holders. And that's a really, uh, as far as, you know, that, that's very satisfying for us because like the silage, there's a, you know, you're able to uh, sort of have an impact into, a, into quite a few small dairy guys. And, uh, and it just really encourages us and we also, um, it, it just really encourages us that uh, this is for seed, happy for, to grow for consumption, but the amount we can grow for consumption means nothing, uh, but there's just a good multiplier on this. Uh, we also grow other types of beans like uh, uh, rose cocoa and uh, other local varieties. Uh, once again, uh, moving increasingly towards seed. There's nothing unique about um, uh, myself, what's special is the system and the system, uh, zero-till, the conservation farming, controlled traffic, uh, the crop rotations and all that sort of thing, that's where the value is and uh, uh, nature will do it for us in a large, in a main way but we've just got to let it do that and that's part of our shared learning thing is we don't want people making mistakes that could be avoided. So why not share that information? And really that's a, uh, a big part of our motivation is to help people sort of leapfrog ahead 
uh, and encourage people because if you get too many knocks, uh, people get disheartened and uh, we're just trying to encourage people that there's a great future um, here in Kenya, particularly in the low rainfall areas. Thanks, Stuart. So as part of our panel now, we also have four 2019 scholars, and I'm just going to briefly introduce them, and then uh, each of them will talk just for a couple of minutes uh, about themselves, introduce themselves a bit further, and what they've been doing with their Nuffield journey so far. So to begin with, uh, Richard Leesk is a 2019 scholar supported by Wine Australia. Uh, Richard is a viticulturalist from South Australia, and he explored how regenerative agriculture systems can be incorporated into wine grape production to improve soil health and capacity, as well as reduce input requirements. Richard. Thank you, Richard. Yeah, um, afternoon, everyone. Uh, great to be here. Um, yeah, thank you. Uh, obviously, um, I'm a wine grape grower and a wine grape producer and also a vineyard management consultant um, based in McLaren Vale, um, just south of Adelaide. Um, and yeah, and as Richard highlighted, I, you know, I, look, I looked into this sort of fairly emotive topic uh, at times of regenerative agriculture um, and a lot of different systems across sort of 10 different countries um, and dozens of farming uh, industries. I wasn't uh, particularly focused on viticulture. I wanted to look at um, other industries uh, and what they were doing to you know, intrinsically improve uh, soil carbon capture, uh, soil carbon um, storage into the soil, mostly from production gains uh, at this stage, not necessarily uh, touching on trading. Um, and also the, you know, how they were increasing and potentially utilising, you know, this great um, resource that I think is out there in the soil microbial uh, community and uh, all, that, all that interesting stuff that's underneath our feet. Um, how they were leveraging biodiversity services, uh, whether that be in production systems or in the what we would term the non-productive zones around uh, farms and, and, and industries. And also, I think importantly, you know, how they were reducing their energy commitment uh, in their system, whether it be energy that they import with inputs or whether that's the, how they go about um, their farming operations and, and what they were doing to, to lessen that impact. Um, so my key three, you know, three of my key findings uh, really were, you know, increasing, you know, plant diversity in our vineyard systems. We've got a large um, area that we currently just use to drive tractors up and down. I think we can utilise that better um, in terms of plant species, plant number, um, and and potentially seasonal plantings that that help uh, increase that uh, area for production services. Um, I think livestock um, are really important piece of the puzzle for this this type of farming system but I think at this stage in the industry we don't do it very well so really managing them well is a really important component um, and I think partnering with you know research bodies to um, for like-minded farmers to, to look at what do these systems do on a scale you know I think there's so much we've got to learn there's so much we don't understand um, and, and farmers don't have time to do the research and researchers really need someone to partner with so that um, we can get a, we can get an understanding of how these things work. Um, and what we've done is really implement all the sort of six practices that I've highlighted in my report, you know, across 200 plus hectares of uh, vineyard in the last uh, 18 months, uh, which has been you know, a pretty interesting exercise, um, which now includes a 700 head um, livestock uh, business um, that, you know, didn't exist two years ago, which has, um, you know, obviously increased our bottom line, but also increased our management um, scope as well. So, um, yeah, that's what I've been up to. Great. Thanks, Richard. 
Um, our second 2019 scholar on the panel is Joanna Tomlinson, uh, whose scholarship was supported by the CBH group. Joanna is a mixed farmer from the South Coast region of Western Australia, and she investigated the latest soil health research and best practice management for soil health around the world. Joanna. Thanks, Richard, and good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for your attention and time and to our previous presenters. So together with my husband, Wayne, and our team, we operate, as Richard said, a mixed enterprise. We're broad acre, non-irrigated, third generation Australian family farm business. Key commodities, prime lamb, grain, fed beef for the domestic markets, both of those, coarse grains and canola, as well as hay and silage. So in terms of my business role, uh, I consider that Wayne is the operations and I am the office. So I very much office-based human resource management, the bookkeeping, the systems, uh, the financial management and those sorts of uh, roles within that uh, organisation. So what did I study? As Richard mentioned, it was around soil health and I really wanted to understand the future drivers and critical knowledge growth strategies with that focus on soil acidification, which is one of our greatest challenges in the West Australian soils. Essentially, my preliminary findings and my gut feeling was that we, we do have a lot of information and we always need more. And I'm a big advocate for research and development, as well as that validation on farm. But farmers are either going to adopt best practice or they're not. So what then my interest turned to what are the, the pipeline of drivers to really drive that best practice adoption? And how do we as growers, as networks of growers and as an industry best enable and empower this change? I found it pretty difficult to, to stop my research and to write my report because it seems that um, in the last few months in particular, or this last year or so, and probably heightened by the pandemic, that's, there's a switch flicked on sustainability. Um, so it was quite difficult to stop researching. But since completing my report, I've observed a pretty much rapid explosion in the sustainability focus across a number of our commodities. Um, and that pipeline of drivers actually feels a little bit more like a bullet train um, in some respects. My key recommendations were very much around increasing understanding of the, the situation and the health of our soils more broadly across Western Australia in particular, uh, respecting our soils as the foundation of agriculture. Consolidating the information that we have, there's just such a huge wealth of information and how do we have an end user focus on and put that information on a platform that growers can easily access uh, and that gets maintained and, and uh, up to date. So that longevity of the information was important. I also made a call for a, uh, a larger network of longer term trials around soil health in, in Western Australia as well as a call for supporting growers and natural resource management groups to ensure that the capability and capacity can happen at a ground level and that there's local validation of that research and development. In terms of what I've done since my research has concluded, uh, very practically across the farm, we continue to address our soil acidification issues, especially on our higher rainfall grazing system property, where we find that is very pronounced as an issue in our soils. More broadly, we're working to position our business to be more proactive than reactive around sustainability, but as I said, it's, it's moving pretty quickly at the moment. We're in the information and knowledge growth phase around carbon and emissions and looking to update our quality systems to account for those. Uh, just for example, uh, we were informed by email during the week around the ISCC certification for our grains and the requirement for Australian growers to have a biodiversity and pollinator action plan and an energy and greenhouse gas air pollution management plan. 
So there's there's a lot happening and pretty quickly. So grateful for support on those uh, throughout industry. Outside of the farming business in late 2020, I started in the role of Chief Operations Officer at South Coast Natural Resource Management. And in this role on a day-to-day -day basis, I have the privilege of working on SDG 15, the life on the land. So excitingly, that's not only across the South Coast, but it extends into other areas of Australia. At a regional level, I work with the team and lots of various stakeholders uh, to protect and restore and promote sustainable use of terrestrial ecosystems, as well as addressing the you know, sustainability of our natural resources, halting and reversing land degradation, for example, as well as biodiversity loss. One aspect of that role I'm particularly passionate about is ensuring that end user focus. So how do we best support land managers, especially farmers, to make the decisions at the local level which contribute to the broader sustainability agenda, those sustainable development goals? So thank you. Thanks, Joanna, and could not agree more about your comments about this explosion of interest in sustainability. Probably 80% of the work we're doing at AFI at the moment is related to sustainability policy, strategy or investment um, in some kind or another. It is just uh, amazing to see how much of a driver that is uh, for pretty much everything um, in ag at the moment. Um, Ellen Litchfield is the third 2019 uh, scholar on the panel. Ellen is a vet and a pastoralist from South Australia who investigated the environmental and socio-political impacts of climate change on pastoral enterprises and the Australian rangelands, looking at methods to increase resilience of these systems. Ellen's scholarship was supported by Westpac Agribusiness. Ellen. Hi, thank you. It's um, been great uh, listening to all the presentations today. Sorry for my um, jumping around. We had a bit of a mix up with some horses and things like that. So I've just been traveling, but I've pulled over. So hopefully the internet holds up. I'm yes, looking at the environmental and socio-political effects of climate change. Um, I'm a third generation pastoralist on a um, cattle and sheep property in Northern South Australia. So where our properties are located is the highest volatility in rainfall in Australia. And, um, you know, climate change poses a even greater risk to that, um, to that volatility as well. And um, so when my, my husband and I moved back to the property in 2017, and I guess climate change and how we can maintain our life on the land, was really at the forefront of our minds. And so that's what sort of spurred me on to, to do the Nuffield and to look into these this practices. Um, I had a fantastic experience thanks to Westpac and Nuffield, um, traveled around. So the um, pastoralists and producers and in different parts of the world, how they are um, in other sort of harsh environments. So um, British Columbia um, in Canada, so in places where they have the um, grazing leases on virgin forests, that's a similar setup to our pastoral leases that we have in um, across Australia and where we are. So, you know, uh, that was another important thing is because you are a bit more limited as to the scope of what you can do under a pastoral lease versus freehold. Um, also went over, spent some time in Kenya uh, and South Africa, just trying, you know, the areas that have a similar um, environment to us. And then um, 
as well, you know, through the US and um, the EU and the other areas where the um, markets and ecological um, service markets are a bit more developed than we have in Australia as well. Um, so what I found from my Nuffield, um, I guess, I think the advantage for us back and, you know, in our um, production here and across the world, you know, it's not just about, um, it's not just about producing beef and um, lamb for us. It's also about conservation, you know, we're a zero input system. So we rely on having um, solid ground cover and um, maintaining that natural biodiversity. So I think going forward as, um, you know, um, Johanna and um, Richard both touched on is as we're seeing that the consumer and the industry as a whole is more engaged in um, sustainability and ecosystem services. Um, I think that's a real um, a plus for pastoralists in that they're going to get some more of a land role that they play. So back on the far back on the stations, that's meant we've been working with a um, third party in New Zealand to measure our carbon footprint. Um, and then also, because one of the main issues is like, is the measuring and sort of quantifying natural capital and those sorts of things that I think is a really big focus area, you know, across agriculture globally. Um, so I've been working with another third party, um, you know, using satellite imagery to measure our, the percentage of area that we have that's forested and um, reforested because we do talk a lot about um, soil carbon in Australia, but I mean, really that's a, that's a high rainfall game. Um, and 70% of Australia's, you know, arid, semi-arid, so, you know, we need to really, um, so, and then um, off farm, interestingly, one of the um, things that I've found was talking to producers across the world, be it in, you know, Canada, um, Africa, to Australia, the main concern was actually they were less concerned about the environmental impacts of climate change and more concerned with the um, access to natural resources and the um, impacts from the political, um, you know, policy frameworks that are going to be put in place. And I guess obviously, you know, I was mainly talking to us is a really big concern um, for farmers across the across the world. Um, and I think that the way that we need to counteract that is um, is you know being engaged and um, and working on the policies and engaging with our local governments and consumers and things like that. So I've been doing some work with a group called Farmers for Climate Action. Um, and that does a lot of like advocacy and policy work. We work with AFI, with Richard and, um, you know, just making sure that it's a really evidence-based um, framework for climate change policy around agriculture in Australia. Um, and I really think that farmers should be at the, you know, at the table um, discussing that because we are obviously the ones dealing with it, daily, you know, to make some really positive changes on that. All right, thank you very much. Thanks, Ellen. Your connection held up just. It was a bit scratchy, but uh, I think we, we got it all. Um, so the, the final 2019 scholar uh, on the panel is Claire Peltzer. Uh, Claire oversees a prime land production system at Evandale in Tasmania. Her scholarship was supported by MLA. 
Uh, she investigated global programs that sought to better attract and retain young people into pursuing a career in agriculture. Claire. Thank you very much, Richard. Um, I hope everyone's having a good afternoon. So yes, I do. Um, I am overseeing the prime land production on our family run farm, um, but also have a degree in uh, education and science as a secondary science and agriculture teacher. And that's been really interesting to sit on both sides of the pipeline as such of trying to attract and future proof our workforce uh, for agriculture. Uh, I think it's a, I was very fortunate to travel 14 different countries. Um, I was talking to schools, universities and other educational providers, and then also to farmers and large um, organisations as well to really see what works and who's doing it well. I think I thought I was going to come home with a program. It was going to be a quick fix, um, implemented into schools or into the industry, tick the box and move on. However, it's never quite so easy. What I found is the dire need to broaden the definition of agriculture. At the moment, the perception, which is what youth are using, uh, is that agriculture only equals farming. We don't, um, we haven't been able to quite change that perception. And I think a lot of time and energy will need to go into that to demonstrate the, uh, the, the vast um, uh, career job, careers and jobs that are available in our industry. Um, existing in the cities as well as out in the country. We have got really got to work on our attracting the 12 to 16 year old youth into a career in agriculture. And the research from the UK is telling us that we need to allow the youth to feel like they know a lot, know enough about agriculture and they have connections with professionals within the industry and they're actually engaging with agriculture in every day. So with this in mind, we could actually be really strategic about creating a framework um, to make sure that as an industry and as education as well, that we can really work together to provide these individual youth with really positive agricultural experiences, um, be in the school, which would be fabulous to get all schools teaching agriculture, but that's just, we're very fortunate to have it in any schools, um, but also as an industry as well, we, we really need to be providing programs that have got a true measure of success and aren't just ticker box. Um, I think, again, we've just got to be strategic about this. And as um, Dick was talking about before, it's just like any business. We do need to have a plan and we can't just leave it up to chance. Uh, at the moment, I've been working in sort of advisory roles in that um, agriculture and education sector, um, the intersect between the two industries to make sure that we are uh, informing youth about the careers that are available that actually do reflect what's happening in industry. I did start, um, launched a, a business in educational agritourism uh, at the start of COVID. So anyway, it's, it's sitting on the shelf. It's uh, a good business in, in theory. And what I've been looking into is bringing school groups down to Tasmania to connect them with different parts of the industry and by um, yeah, introducing them to really good professionals within, within the state. They would all then be connected through social media afterwards. So, um, yeah, so that's, that's me for these days. Thank you very much. Thanks, Claire. 
really good to hear uh, what you've all been doing since your, your scholarships. Um, I'm going to direct my first question and just remind everyone again about the Q&A function um, and some of those questions will be addressed by the speakers uh, directly as we're going through. Um, but I'm going to direct my first question to, to Stuart. Um, it was really fascinating, Stuart, to see uh, what you're doing in Kenya. And I'm really particularly interested, again, tying it back to the SDG goal. Um, you've taken modern agricultural techniques um, to Africa at, with a real focus on delivering environmental and social outcomes. Um, you know, that, that real drive to, to lift people out of poverty and, and do it in an environmentally sustainable way. Um, that's really what the SDGs are all about. But there is some criticism from time to time that um, some interpretation of the SDGs is, is essentially anti-modern agriculture. So I'm just sort of really interested in your perspective about you know, taking that modern agricultural approach and how effective it is and, and how much scope there is to continue to do that. Thanks, Richard. Um, yeah, there's a lot of uh, contradictions when you bring um, modern things to uh, places like Kenya. Uh, when I say modern things, modern agricultural uh, practices, it's one of the uh, things that is very, very unhelpful is the, uh, and I think this comes um, more from the Northern Hemisphere, particularly Europe, is a uh, this uh, almost obsession with uh, organic. Organic equals pure. And it's very, very unhelpful. I can't tell you how unhelpful it is because um, whilst um, uh, my vision for our future is on our farm that we would be using something biological and that we avoid all synthetic inputs, that would be wonderful. And I hope that we're heading that way. But that's not the reality of where we are. And uh, and the amount of, we have a lot of visitors and I, I can't tell you how demonized any sort of herbicide or in, well, particularly herbicides, funnily enough, insecticides, people don't seem so touchy about, but herbicides, uh, they're really touchy about. And uh, I mean, they're one small tool as everybody knows, um, uh, but here in this environment, uh, at the moment, we do need to use them and we use them very carefully and in very, very modest, amounts. Um, I sometimes give the example of uh, to people that visit and explain to them you can, if you want to be a full cultivation farmer and use 10 litres a hectare of diesel, or do you want to use a thousand grams active of say glyphosate and get all the other benefits of water infiltration, blah, blah, blah. So um, yeah, there's a, uh, and there is, uh, I mean, we, we run a hybrid system. We try to, um, I mean, we're fiercely commercial because, uh, not because we want to make money, but I just believe that there's no uh, sustainability unless things are uh, financially sustainable. And, uh, and, and I mean, we deal with a lot of NGOs. They bring a lot of people to us uh, and, and they do good work. Uh, they're, not, they're not great at getting things on the ground, but they're really good at collecting people and organising groups and, um, yeah. Uh, getting information out. So I guess um, that's not what I'm good at necessarily. So um, in that way, we sort of part, you know, they, they use our, our strengths and we use theirs. Um, I don't know if that quite answered your question, Richard. 
No, it does. Thanks, Stuart. And look, I'll, I'll carry on um, a bit further with something you just mentioned, but I'll, I'll open it up to the others to comment then as well. Um, you talked about the commercial drivers that you have and, and the commercial focus. And um, I think that one of the things that's changing very rapidly at the moment are the commercial signals around sustainability um, and the potential for um, impact capital, for um, you know, in investment in sustainability outcomes. Um, I'll ask you, first of all, whether that's something you're seeing, you know, coming through NGOs or other investors into Africa, it's something that might provide, you know, incentivization to continue this sustainability journey. Um, and then I'd open it up to any of the others who want to comment in terms of what they're seeing relative to their farm businesses, whether this is a new, um, you know, an emerging market mechanism that's making a difference in the way that you think about sustainability opportunities. You don't see it in, you yeah not in market the market here the market is so fragmented that um it is it's hard to explain in a short time but um uh there's no consolidation of um uh, obviously like the first world but um yeah the yeah i i i think there's a danger in uh bringing uh you know first world compliance before we have first world uh, simple practices. Yeah. The things, the lowest holes in the bucket here are not, you know, they're simple things, you know what I mean? And and some of the, uh, we're sort of uh, running before we've even learned to walk here. And uh, so when you get overarching, you know, concepts that are, uh, you know, bigger than the capacity but if you can't do the basics, uh, then don't try to do the complex stuff. And I just, that's what does concern me. And it doesn't concern me in our business where, you know, we're, um, you know, we're really working hard on, uh, on a lot of different ways of, uh, and a lot of that's commercially driven because most, most of the time, uh, the best outcome for the environment is the best outcome for your profitability. That's a reality, not always. But um, it's not like I think we're learning that you don't have to sacrifice production to do the right thing in terms of sustainability. Thanks, Stuart. Anyone else like to have a shot at financial incentives for sustainability? Richard. Yeah, Richard, I think it's coming uh, fairly, a bit like Jonah was saying fairly rapidly uh, for our industry. The, the industry itself has got a um, reasonably well-established uh, sustainability program, which, which is um, farmer-driven and, and has a number of um, learning goals within the whole thing. Um, you know, it's only a matter of time before uh, the major wine um, and grape buyers um, use that as a as a lever to 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 buy fruit uh, and buy bulk wine because they're getting uh, top-down pressure from um, their suppliers as well, which are the big um, supermarket companies um, throughout. Europe and um, to a lesser de degree America, but certainly Europe. So this traceability thing is coming. Um, if you think you're going to avoid it, it's not going to happen. What I like about it is it touches not only on the environmental aspect of farming, but it also has all the um, attributes that Dick was talking about, which is fiscal management, people management, um, roles and responsibilities. All of that is tied into the sustainable, this particular sustainability program. So it's a whole of business 
um, program that that not only that helps people get from point A to point B in a much more organised manner, and it, and and it means that the as Stuart's saying, it, it means that the whole business is sustainable long term, not just the environmental aspect of it. Thanks, Richard. Anyone else want to make a comment, Claire? Yeah. Oh, sorry. I will Richard quickly. Um, just talking on the like for land production down here in Tassie, we're very fortunate to have sort of irrigation and that has enabled us to be sustainable in a sense. But as Johanna will tell you, that comes with its own issues. Um, but definitely the productivity benefits for us to be sustainable in terms of pasture management and livestock health, that's the commodity price is so high, you get kickbacks so easily. So I think if you're, yeah, if you to be sustainable right now is should be at the top of everyone's list. Ellen? Yeah, so um, we've been part of the um, like NASA, so the um, National Association for Sustainable Agriculture in Australia since 2012. And um, I guess I think, you know, I agree with um, Stuart in that it is that real um, concern that as you know we need to make more from less we need to increase our efficiencies and for a lot of farms and a lot of businesses that doesn't mean going organic or um, following the typical regenerative um, principles it means you know utilizing a lot of the modern farming practices that we've got out already um, obviously for pastoralists um, up where we are being organic which is you know what NASA is really being part of the USDA's not um, it doesn't, it's not a sacrifice on our um, productivity per hectare. Um, it's it just, it's um, one way that we can get sort of recognition for the um, conservation work that um, being a pastoralist in Australia um, lends its hand to. So, you know, for us, we've seen it as a, as a really big positive for our business. And also it just sort of makes sure that going back to the stuff that Dick was touching on, it, it just make sure when you're a family business and sometimes things get away from you at least every year you're really auditing all your sustainability um, achievements throughout that year from you know we go through our social commitment like social sustainability so you know what community involvement we're doing um, you know so we're really going right back to the basics of you know that social economic environmental and um, yeah I think for us it's um, it's a really big benefit to us. Joanna. Thanks, Richard. And I, I really like where Ellen was going with those last comments, and that's about that continual improvement process. What I get concerned about is that sustainability equals environment only, equals you have to have a specific farming style, you have to be regenerative, you have to be organic. It's not that. One of the biggest eye-openers for me with part of the Nuffield journey was that there's so many different production systems, even within the south coast of WA so many different production systems, there's diversity. Sustainability, for me, is about the continual improvement, acknowledging there's a challenge in whatever aspect of a business, and then working towards, making that plan, as Dick was saying, working towards how do you address that? So at the moment, our focus is on our soil health, so it's continual improvement in our business for that. But sustainability doesn't mean any one system is better than the other. It's all about that continual improvement. Thanks, Johanna. And um, just to back up your point, um, if anyone was listening at the beginning yesterday to Lachlan Monsborough from Rabo and you know talking about the 
investment signals um, coming in around sustainability, uh, he, he very clearly made the point that it's about ESG and, and the social and the governance aspects, as well as just the biophysical um, environmental sustainability is where a lot of the investment signals are coming from. Um, so, you know, we need to be aware of how we address that through agriculture as well to be able to realise some of this, um, this investment that, that's, that's potentially looking for homes um, in agriculture. Um, so you, you talked about, you know, define not just one system and putting labels on systems and defining systems there, Joanna. Um, the word regenerative has come up a few times in the discussion so far. There's a couple of questions in the, the chat about it. Um, it's, uh, you know, it, it, I sometimes sort of wonder how it got to be such a controversial topic, to be honest, uh, but it is. That's just the reality at the moment. There are uh, very strong proponents. There are very uh, strong, not necessarily anti-regenerative agriculture, but just people that, that can't understand um, how it has become such a thing um, at the moment and that, you know, we are they'll say that we're all doing it anyway and that we're farming is regenerative and we, there doesn't need to be this focus. Um, it's probably worth everyone addressing their context of what they think uh, regenerative agriculture is um, and, you know, whether it's even, you know, why is it such a thing? Is it, is it important that, that we're addressing this or is it just some, something that we're doing anyway? Who, who, wants, who wants to start? I'll start with Dick. Um, you, you mentioned it as part of your talk, Dick. Well, I, I think anybody that wants to, their business to be in the game long-term, whether you use the term regenerative, restorative, or sustainable, you can put your own definition to it. But I think all of us deep down inside want to leave the business in better shape than we had it so that each generation can say they're actually leaving the resources as a, a more uh, sustainable resource. And I want to go back to some of the comments that were made earlier when you're talking about issues with financial incentives. Um, the biggest challenge I see now is we're penalizing early adopters and we're a lot of our incentivizing systems are only providing incentives to the bad actors to try to catch up to our better, what we call our premier best producers. So we were, <clears throat> we were one of the first people on the globe to pay in the true carbon credit lease in 2000, while a lot of people were talking about it. And we learned a lot about the concept of not penalizing early adopters and not, not penalizing those people that actually set the standard. So I think one of our challenges is how do we continue to motivate and incentivize the best people to continue to find new ways? And if, it's not one system, it's not no-till, it's not cover crops, it's, it's not organic. I think every person has to look at their own micro environment and say, what does sustainability and restorative management and regenerative management mean to us in our region, in our climate, with the soils and resources we have to manage? And I see a huge problem in many, in Canada, in Australia, in the US of a tendency to do a one size fits all. And we need to talk more about what works in your climate uh, and how do you work with tools and the resources and the climate that you have to have a sustainable business. I, I think that's a great answer, Dick. I'll just quickly relate a story 
that is relevant to how difficult that is to achieve in practice in relation to supply chains and, and, and marketing channels. Um, I recently had a conversation with um, head of product at Woolworths in Australia here, um, who is one of our major um, retail supermarket chains, uh, who was just pleading for a definition of regenerative that he could understand so he could market it. And that's all he wanted, you know, the, the, the idea that you could have a nuanced, um, you know, uh, set of, of, of different classifications and things that were relevant to each region and each farming practice that would driver, deliver true sustainability, that was always going to be too hard a marketing task for someone like a Woolworths. Um, they need just to have a label that can get people in the door, you know, we're a regenerative supermarket, whatever. So, yeah, I, I completely agree with your sentiment. Um, I think the realities of achieving that at the mass market scale um, is, is going to be a challenge. Um, who else would like to have some comments on, on uh, regenerative ag? Oh, so uh, Richard. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, one of the objections, I think, to the term is it would infer that, uh, that you've been in a degenerative, a degenerative system. So, and when you, and uh, I, I don't have any objection to that because, you, you know, it's just, you know, whether, you, like Dick said, you can call it one of 10 things. Um, uh, uh, but I think it's just a bit of a problem for some people. And the reality of progress is that it's usually the last pioneers of the last revolution are the objectors to the next uh, will stand in the road quite often. And, uh, and we've got to be careful, say, as a, I mean, I was around in the early days, so I certainly wasn't a pioneer, but I was around in the early days and I was an early adopter of zero till and all the, um, you know, so, yeah, in, in that era. And uh, we've just got to be a bit careful that we don't become the stumbling block to the next thing. And, um, uh, but at the same time, uh, I do see a problem, uh, not a problem, but I just see, I can see the, the very valid objection to the term uh, that some prog some progressive people have because it sort of infers that you've been in a uh, you know your system's been uh, degrading, uh, whereas uh, maybe a lot of people, good operators, have been maintaining it, but we can always do better. Claire, thanks, Richard, and I agree, Stuart. As a like producing prime lands under, we've got irrigation, we've got dry land. All I'd like to know is a continuum and then place where I am and then what the steps to get, where to get to the next place. So wherever you begin doesn't really matter. Um, it's just making sure you're moving up that continuum and by having people around you with strategies that are, um, that are seen to be financially um, smart and good business decisions is what I'm looking for. Hi Richard, I'll... Yeah. Um chime in i've just turned my camera off yeah we can hear you okay yeah thought it might come across a bit clearer yeah i mean i think i have a bit of the regenerative um label is um difficult because i know you know a bit like what stuart said it um does make other um farmers sort of it creates a bit of an us versus them narrative but i think actually um as a industry as a whole so people from outside the agricultural industry looking in the regenerative story is a good one and um 
it's it's just sort of a louder way to promote the things that you know um, other farmers all farms are doing like the um, you know for example soil carbon so you know we might not all agree with Alan Savory's um, you know reverse desertification ideas but all farmers want more soil carbon more soil carbon means more water so at least it's a way that we can communicate out of them yep thanks i think we're starting to lose you a bit there ellen so um did joanna or richard want to say anything otherwise i'm going to come back to dick for a couple of questions just quickly i, I don't want to yep. i mean we've talked about it pretty well um richard but i think you know it just comes down to an honesty bit you know within yourself um i agree you know a lot of people are already doing this stuff that hasn't that hasn't you know they haven't tied it to that label and that's fine so mm -hmm. again if you're honest with yourself and you know that you know for us we're looking at soil carbon soil microbial diversity energy use okay they're our measuring tools we happen to use the regenerative label when we're talking about our, the way we do things um, and then we talk about why we do them based on those um, sets of parameters like Claire I just wanted a baseline to know that I am actually moving the needle on some of those things forward so I can honestly say um, that I'm leaving this resource in a better state that's all it is and I think um, you know the longer this discussion goes um, the more we'll lose the nuances we'll gain the understanding and the trust amongst all farmers because as Stuart said it's not it's not exclusively about um, not using some of the industrial you know chemistry that we've got it's about using it wisely and smartly and and to be honest a lot of the time it's about stopping doing the th things that we already know are dumb and, and working on the things that we've got um, you know some in interesting information on and finding out where the levels are uh, that we can push them to Excellent. Thanks, Richard. Look, I'm just going to come back to, to Dick for a couple of questions uh, in relation to uh, the, the business strategy that he talked about, um, because Nuffield scholars always love talking about business structures and that sort of thing. But before I come back to a final question in relation to the SDG 15 theme to everyone. Uh, but Dick, there's a, one question there from David Brownhill on um, how members, uh, how family members uh, that were uh, not directly in the business were rewarded with the shareholders, they receive a dividend. Um, and then if you could also just quickly address Dave Wooden's question on uh, the key to successful uh, transitions to a board structure when you've got uh, partners at all different levels of, of professionalism. Well, in the first question, um, I think we're gonna see more business models where we have owners in the business that are not actively engaged in day-to-day -day operations. The, the capital required to have a viable business is not making it possible for those that want to run the business to also own all the capital. So the key is how do you educate owners to be responsible owners and where are the um, firewalls and boundaries where owners don't step into roles that are, should be for operating members or managing members. So the secret is having a very transparent and, um, and market-based compensation structure for those that are actively working in the business, where they're not undercompensated or overcompensated. And if, if the labor and management is properly paid, then the remainder of the earnings belong to the owners. And then the next thing is the, the board needs to have a policy on how do we 
manage our retained earnings? Is there very specific levels of debt equity ratios we want to achieve or return on assets? And when we've exceeded those goals, what are the policies of the business on distributing earnings to the owners in terms of cash withdrawals or distributions of dividends or whatever? But oftentimes we have a huge conflict between off-farm owners who are not working the business, they're not paid a salary or wage. And so the only way they see value is getting a dividend out of the business. And then they don't often have good financial information that shows that leaving money in the business helps it grow their value as well. So there needs to be a, a transparent discussion at the board level of what our earnings distributions policy is and what drives that so that it's not emotional and it's an intentional process. Okay, that makes sense. And I was just starting to type an answer to the other question, a great question. When you have people at all different levels of professionalism in a business and they're weighing, should we formalize our board of directors function? Uh, I'll ask people in a, in a workshop, how many of you serve on a co-op board or a school board or a church board? And it's incredible. Almost everybody in the room serves on some kind of a board. Where they're fully aware of what it means to be on a board, what the board does, hiring management, setting policy, uh, doing performance evaluations, but they don't bring that same concept back to how it should apply to our farm business. So the first thing that needs to be done is to help people understand that you may not have a formally acknowledged board, but you do board functions every day. You review financials. You, you think about who will be the next manager of your business. Uh, you, you think about what will be our compensation policy or so forth. So formalizing it to put those discussions in a place where the people at that given day are wearing their board hat. They're not different people. They're the same people thinking on that day that we are now performing our role as a board of owners, looking at policy, looking at financial direction, looking at strategic planning. And so it isn't changing duties, it's simply formalizing those and setting a more intentional process for meeting as a board, talk about those things that boards talk about. And when that happens, the quality of the discussion and the productivity is much, much more fruitful. If there's no clear board function, strategic planning gets mixed up with when are we going to plow the back 40 and when are we going to sell the cows and when are we going to hire the next person? And so it doesn't get the weight that it should to really affect the long-term success of the business. And one other thing I think you'll find in many of these businesses, some people have worked off the farm where they've had good experience working with the other boards. Others have never left the farm. And so they feel threatened by this board function. They see it as simply an act of bureaucracy. So there needs to be a lot of mutual patience. Um, we need to sell the concepts of the why, not just we should do this and, and let people come along with the process. Start slow. Don't, don't start up and have a board meeting every month. Start out by saying, we're gonna have a board meeting every quarter. This is going to be the agenda. We've, there's extensive information in the new guidebook on the role of a board and how to set up board meetings, and how you define a proper agendas, 
And when people walk through those, they realize this isn't rocket science. This is just good management, good management process. I'm going to come back with one question for everyone. Um, we've only got a minute, um, I think. So please try and keep it to 10 seconds or so each. Uh, and it's going to be related to the SDG 15 theme of the session. Um, and the question is, what is the one thing, the one significant thing that you could do in your business to halt or reverse land degradation, to halt biodiversity loss, and importantly, how do you make it pay? And I'm going to go in reverse order of speakers. So Claire. Um, we have planted 22,000 trees this year in shelter belts for that reason. Excellent. That's a very strong action. Ellen. Uh, yes, yeah, so for us, we've been managing, managing total grazing pressure for the things we can't sell. So a good kangaroo market would be a big game changer for us. Interesting. Okay. Joanna. That unmute button. Uh, grow knowledge and, and grow our soil health. Good call to action. Richard. Uh, increase plant diversity, uh, active cell grazing, and um, repair and, and restore biodiversity areas off production system areas. Excellent. Stuart? Uh, we've introduced uh, a multi-cut system for our, our foragers, which give us mimic a, a perennial type system in an annual type. It's a hybrid anyway, and that's really moving us forward with our soil organic carbon at depth. Perfect. And Dick? I think we have a long ways to go in refining our variable rate systems, both in seeding and fertilizer, as well as increasing the intensity of our, our zone management in the large fields we have. Excellent. Wow. Um, great responses. And thank you so much. I mean, normally you say take 10 seconds, everyone speaks for a minute or two. Um, you all did keep the time, which was great, which means that we have finished close to the time I was told to go to. So thank you everyone for a very, a really interesting, fantastic discussion. Um, and I'm going to hand back to Jodie Redcliffe, who's going to uh, run through some of the 2022 scholars. Thanks everyone. So yesterday we introduced six of the 2022 scholars. Today we have another six to introduce. And I'll start those with Munro Hardy. Munro is currently living in Sydney, but relocating back to the Territory quite soon, as his uh, topic that he's studying for his Nuffield is opportunities to make Australia's northern beef industry more productive and resilient. Munro is generously supported by a coalition of companies, AACO, CPC, S. Kidman & Co, and Elders. And we welcome Munro to the ranks of Nuffield Scholars. Secondly, we have Joe Kelly. Joe is from Bribey Highland in Queensland. Joe will be studying the accelerating development of the emerging industry of seaweed in Australia. She is generously supported by AgriFutures Australia. Jade King is also from Queensland the back of the Sunshine Coast, Peachester. So Jade is studying the agronomic practices to produce consistently high quality finger limes. So Jade is a finger lime farmer, but she's looking at 
um, particular agronomic practices that can be implemented to make sure that the fruit um, is grown as successfully as it can be, being a native Australian food, um, and to make sure that the, the fruits market can be expanded. Jade's scholarship is generously supported by AgriFutures Australia also. Another Queenslander is Jesse Moody. Jesse's from Cunnamulla, and he's looking at the correlation between soil health and the success of livestock production. He's supported by Rabobank. Marlon Motlop is from Woodville West in South Australia. Marlon's looking at the cultural significance, origins and nutritional benefits of specific Australian native foods. He's supported by Woolworths, the fresh food people. And finally, the last of our 12 2022 scholars is Adam Williamson from Scone in New South Wales. Welcome, Adam. Adam's looking at combating pasture compaction to benefit the thoroughbred industry and other high value livestock systems. Adam is supported by AgriFutures Australia. So I hope all 12 of our scholars have got a small taste over the last couple of days of the depth and breadth of the Nuffield Network, as I know all our scholars are online listening. And I hope you've gained some appreciation from the incredibly thought provoking and sometimes challenging conversations that Nuffield scholars have and can take a little bit home already because uh, what happens in a Nuffield conference and in a Nuffield conversation is the wheels start turning. So thank you to all our new scholars. Welcome. The Nuffield Australia Annual Conference was exclusively sponsored by Rabobank and CSIRO. Thank you to all our conference speakers and panellists. Links to their details are provided in the episode show notes. To listen to other conference sessions, make sure to subscribe. And to see videos of these podcasts, visit the Nuffield Australia YouTube channel. For more information about upcoming events, check out our Facebook page or visit nuffield.com.au. Thanks for listening.